0: Welcome to the ASC podcast, Cytopath Pod. Join special guests to highlight ASC activities in cytopathology education, advocacy, and research.
1: So, welcome everyone. The American Society of Cytopathology's Research and Current Concepts Committee is proud to present part one of Meet the Winners. This will be a three-part video series that will help all of us to get to know and be inspired by the award winners from our 2020 Annual Scientific Meeting. My name is Michia Nishino from the Department of Pathology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And I'm joined here by my good friend and colleague, Huh Wong from the Department of Pathology at Yale School of Medicine. And both of us are thrilled uh, to meet today with two of the award winners from our annual meeting. And we have Donna Russell from the Department of Pathology at the University of Rochester Medical Center and the winner of this year's Cytotechnologist Scientific Presentation Award for her poster reporting their institutional experience with cirrus effusions. And we're also delighted to have with us Suikrichi Upadhyay Vaskoda Currently a cytopathology fellow at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and our first recipient of the Bernard Naylor Cytomorphology Award for her study characterizing the peritheliomatous pattern as a cytomorphologic proof of recognizing melanoma in FNA samples. So thank you both for joining us today. So why don't we start with some krikri. Can you start with a, uh, a synopsis of your study?
2: Sure. Um, thank you, Dr. Nishino, for this opportunity, and thank you, everyone. Uh, first um this um the peritheliomatis pattern in our study we defined it as a. Uh, seat of viable tumor cells surrounding a central gaping blood vessels. We were seeing this peritheliomatous pattern in our daily practice at site cytology department uh, whenever we were performing an FNA of a melanoma sample. And when we looked back in the literature, the peritheliomatous pattern was reported in various forms of melanoma in histology, but we did not find any literature reporting the peritheliomatous pattern in cytology characterizing melanoma. that's why we decided to do the study and compare the occurrence of the periteliomas pattern with the smears as well as the cell block and. Um it was a very interesting st- um, study we uh, we uh, decided to include the standard histology sections as well so uh, we compared the finding of the a pattern in the smears versus cell block versus histology and in, for the uh, cytology um, preparations like smears and cell block we even uh, quantitatively characterized the perithylomatous pattern into low and high if we were a, um, we, if we were getting the peritheliomatous pattern more than two times in uh, any of the specimen, we uh, counted them as PP high or 2+, and if it was um, encountered very uh, less frequently, like only once or twice, we counted it as uh, low PP. And um, among the most preparations, we saw peritheliomatous pattern predominantly in histology, but cell block was... Uh, more predominant than the smears while talking about the cytology preparations. So whenever we do not have the other clue, like melanin pigment, um, as you all might know, melanin pigment is often not present. It's present in up to 40% in the cases that has been reported in the literature. Whenever there's absence of melanin pigment and the other features which are um, which are helpful might be the peritheliomatous pattern. If there is already a melanin pigment, we often do not go looking for other features, but the binucleation, uh, pseudo inclusions, cytoplasmic Vacuoles along with the peritheliomatis pattern um, is helpful. It will help us uh, order the melanoma markers so that we can save the sample, and you know, like decrease our work uh, workload for more immunohistochemical stains panel, and we can save material for the molecular or other ancillary um, studies, which will help in the personalized genomics treatment. Thank you,
3: Erica. Does pretty uh, this exciting study. So uh, what are the challenges uh, facing you when do this project? I understand a lot of work.
2: Uh, yeah, it was definitely a lot of work, but I should thank my mentor, Dr. Pantunovic. He's always a very good guidance to work uh, in any project as a trainee. Whenever I would go to him when, uh, with any questions, like, are we in first few um, challenges that we faced was like, we were, uh, we started including the uh, fluid cytology specimens as well, but most of them had very marginal cellularity, you know, and we were not able to assess whether they would present as perithelium pattern or not. And technically it was not also fine needle aspiration, you know? So he always had a definitive idea of how to move forward. Um, With those kind of cases, we decided to exclude the effusion cytology cases positive for melanoma. So I would, uh, and then other challenges we faced is like, I, I, as a trainee rotate through three different hospitals and most of the cases we included, was of UPMC Sadie's side. But again, thank you, Dr. Pantanavich and his coordinator, uh, who managed to send me all the slides wherever I wanted. And then we sat together under the microscope and we discussed and agreed on the, each uh, perithelium pattern finding.
1: Yeah, terrific. And could you also just talk about what you found to be the most exciting or rewarding aspect of, of putting this project together?
2: Well, honestly, you know, like, I encountered peritheliomatous pattern when I was signing out with Dr. Pantinavis and it was uh, his idea. But we were appreciating peritheliomatous pattern only in the cell block specimens. I had never given in-depth thought of find- looking for a peritheliomatous pattern, especially in the smears preparation. Then this study w- was more interesting when I p- started pulling all the slides and started looking for the peritheliomatous pattern in the smears as well.
3: So, what uh, do you learn from this experience and some other advice to your peers?
2: Well, uh, you know. We, as a trainee, we tend to involve in projects uh, where we want to correlate with molecular or cutting edge technology. But I felt like this experience of dealing with the different morphological features increased my in-depth knowledge of what I can find in melanoma specimens, which I found really helpful in daily life. Still, when I get melanoma cases, I look for perithelium pattern. And it has been helpful for me too in my daily practice as well.
1: Fantastic. You you know, detailed um, cytomorphologic studies like this one, you know, are really the bedrock, you know, for for our field. And, you know, I was wondering if you can comment on uh, future directions that you might have about, you know, this finding.
2: Well, uh, we tried comparing the occurrence of the peritheliomatous pattern with any hotspot mutation, but we did not find statistically significant, significant finding in our study. We believe that is due to a small no- number of the cases that we included in this study. If we do this study in a very large cohort, probably we can find, you know, a specific hotspot mutation associated with melanoma predisposing to more peritheliomatous pattern than other.
3: Very good. So thank you so much. Sure. I think we can move more on to uh, Donna. Donna is the awardee of the Cytotechnologist Scientific Presentation of this year and do a very exciting study on tumor in uh, peritoneal, pericardial, and peri- uh, pleural fluid. Donna, can you give us a highlight a preview of what you did?
4: Um, I sure can. Can everyone hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Um, malignant serous effusions are a common clinical problem in patients with neoplastic diseases. We all know that in cytopathology. And we know that cytologic evaluation of these effusions, especially because they're fresh, it's, it's minimally invasive and, and an inexpensive procedure for the most part for cancer diagnosis, staging and prognosis. So uh, we wanted to look at, an, we wanted to analyze both pleural, uh, pericardial and peritoneal effusions in this study um, and to try to find the primary site of origin. Of course, there were those sites you know where, where the tumor was of undetermined origin But for the most part, we had great cell block material on all of our cases um, included in the study, and uh, we performed uh, immunochemical stains and molecular testing on those for tumor profiling. But the overall aim of this study uh, was to determine the prevalence of malignancy in both the male and female populations in all types of specimens uh, because the literature sort of had a void uh, from, from uh, a current, in current literature anyways. So we looked at confirmed malignant cases in all three categories. Um, these were identified in our electronic database here at the University of Rochester Medical Center. We also looked at clinical history and um, immunohistochemical results. Uh, they were all noted and correlated in this study. Over this period of time of five years, we found 2,540 serous fluid specimens that were received uh, within the laboratory. And uh, the most common type um, that we received were pleural effusions in both the male and the female populations. Uh, 560 cases, or about 22% of our um, serous effusions were positive. we also looked at age ranges uh, which you know it ranged from anywheres from five to 98 years of age, um, or 97 years of age in both the male and female categories. Females sort of uh, had a slight predominance, a preponderance, I'm sorry, in the fusion uh, all the fusion categories, 1.3 to one, so just very slight. And the most common type of malignancy that we did find was adenocarcinoma in this study. In men, uh, adenocarcinoma of the lung was followed by GI, uh, which is a common uh, finding. uh, So we didn't really see any shifts in paradigm there. But in women, lung adenocarcinoma in our study uh, was more prevalent followed by breast carcinoma as a cause of malignancy. Um, so we, we found this uh, slight shift in paradigm from in the female population with lung adenocarcinoma being uh, the most common type of malignancy. And uh, this is a great study I think because effusion cytology is fresh. It's the ideal specimen for ancillary testing uh, for both IHC and molecular testing. Um, that's about a synopsis of, uh, of the study. Thank you. So, um, okay. a, what really kind of uh, excites
3: you to start this project?
4: Well, I I love working with the residents and fellows in our institution. I I'm in charge of the residency set of pathology and um, fellowship set of pathology program here. I also work uh, uh, as a program director at Roswell Park. Um, comprehensive cancer center. And we have three students this year, cytotechnology students. So I love to teach and research is is a big part of that. And, you know, I love all aspects from, you know, data collection to taking images for the poster papers. Um, I just, I just love working with people as a team and um, trying to uh, help residents and fellows and students you know just get excited about cytopathology uh it's, it's a passion of mine it always has been thank you thank you so much just just i do that when i was trained at university
3: of michigan the first people show me slide are a cytotechnologist i'm really grateful it's, it's very very rewarding experience
1: yeah, you, you know your role as a, a mentor in this project, you know, for for trainees is, is much appreciated as well. Now, can you talk talk to us about any challenges that you faced, you know, during the during the project and and how you know, you went about uh, tackling those?
4: Well, you know, it was during the pandemic, uh, so it was a little difficult because at first our residents were not, you know, in house. We were not. Right. Um, You know, we were doing everything by Zoom. Um, So data entry, even amongst the cytotechnologists um, that were involved in this project, uh, we had to use a shared site to get some of the data entry into. Uh, So those are the challenges here. And then, of course, you know, just getting everything together. I think there were so many versions that we had to email back and forth. It was hard to keep track of all those versions uh, for the final version that we were uh, going to submit
3: what kind of experience you want otherwise to, to your peers learning from this project
4: well i think i find value in teamwork i think that you know when you work together as a team you can accomplish anything um so in this study our resident phoenix bell um, who participated our, um, at that time, she was our resident, now she's a fellow, um, our cytopathologist who was involved, uh, Dr. Tanupriya Agarwal, and um, my co-workers, two cytotechnologists, uh, who I work really well with, Roshana Lynch and Ryan Granger, they all work together. And, you know, I, I really think that you can, you know, accomplish anything. But also, the fact that this data pool is so large, you know. It's a five-year retrospective study. I'm looking forward to multiple future studies from this from this data. I mean, we could look at IHC stains for specific entities, and we have used this database before for other uh, new and upcoming stains and and other projects.
1: Fantastic. You, you know, institutional experiences, you know, like like the one that you brought together serve as a really important point of comparison with our own practice patterns and also useful for informing meta-analyses and standardized reporting systems. And, and your study is so timely, you know, in light of the the, the international system for reporting serious cytology. So, and you know, the journal of the ASC is always looking for, you know, terrific studies like this one. And can you tell us about uh, your plans for publishing this?
4: Um, well, my motivation for this project um, was largely due to my participation as a chapter author uh, from the International System for Reporting uh, Serious Fluid Cytology. Um, the editors, as you know, are Dr. Cruthers, Barbara Cruthers, Dr. Asha Chandra, Dr. Daniel Curtis, and um, Dr. Fernando Schmidt. It truly was an international effort. But uh, Dr. Cruthers and I were um, discussing, you know, gaps in the literature. So at a at a recent CAP meeting, and I I just uh, decided I was going to come back and try to uh, make sure this this could get into the literature. So definitely, of course, it's going to be published in our journal Jask um, as soon as I find time to uh, to uh, get it get it written up. But it, it's in the process; it it needs a little work.
3: Oh, that's um... Have to say, there'd be a lot more versions back and forth, right? <laughs> Much more back and forth, more and more writing. Yes.
4: <laughs> yes, especially since our resident is in Boston now. And and um, so we're definitely going to have to do a few uh, drafts of the manuscripts. But, you know, we work well that way. We figured it out, I think, during this pandemic.
3: Very good. Very good. Thank you, Slay Christy and Donna. So again, I uh, thank you for this uh, really exam- excellent work and congratulations on your work again. As you know, uh, cytopathology is still a very young subspecialty compared other specialty of pathology. So there are much more room, a lot more room for to prepare and standardize the preparation and immunostain and sanitary test. So, and they are also A lot of room to characterize the morphology of a lot of different tumor types. Uh, So, the Bernard Nader Award really opened the avenue for this in depth understanding of the uh, morphology. I encourage new generation to go to this direction. And for our cytotechnologist science award, you know, our cytotechnologist is really kind of middle layer, uh, middle. Uh, 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 level uh, health providers. So now we have the master degree and we really want to encourage more of our cytotechnology to do science and to teach our young resident. So by this kind of award, we try to encourage more of this kind of effort and really hope that we can build a stronger uh, cytopathology subspecialty. So thank you again. And really, we hope next year we'll have more applicants for this both Award. Thanks.
2: Thank you. Thank the ASC. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.
3: Congratulations.
2: Thank you.
5: Thank you. Welcome to part two, uh, meeting the winners are presented by the Research uh, and Current Concepts Committee. Uh, this will be a three-part series of all the winners from the 2020 annual scientific meeting Um, we are joined uh by uh dr robert post and uh melissa mccrawson and they'll be giving a brief summary of their uh excellent work so uh first will be uh dr post um the winner uh, who, who won the uh uh, Warren R. Lang, M.D. Resident uh, Award. It's established in uh, 1978. The award is presented annually to recognize a resident or fellow in, a, in an approved training program who submits the best scientific paper in cytology at, at a poster or platform session during the ASC annual meeting. Um, so, Dr. Post, if you could please give us a brief summary of your poster, that would be wonderful. Thank you.
6: Sure. Um, good afternoon. I'm Dr. Robert Post. I'm a um current third year resident at uh, University of Illinois. Uh, so my presentation, um, my poster, my research project was motivated behind this um, the observation that in patients undergoing anal cancer screening, HIV infection is a significant comorbidity. Um, so we were interested in clarifying the correlation of HIV stat- infection status with um, anal cytopathologic pathologic diagnoses and as well as HPV infection status. So at our institution, um, anal pap cytology specimens are processed using the thin prep system from Hologic and uh, HPV testing is done on the Roche-COBAS 4800 system. Um, so we have, uh, it identifies HPV genotype 1618 as well as a, a kind of a catch-all uh, other high-risk HPV category, which is uh, 12 other high-risk HPV genotypes. Um, so in order to you know, build our cohort, we, we queried uh, Cerner PathNet case retrieval for all patients who underwent anal cytology and had concurrent HPV testing uh, between November 2017 and March 2020. And we reviewed all the results and we ended up with 159 cases that met the criteria. Uh, 31 patients out of this in this cohort of 159 were positive for HIV, and that was so it was about 19% of the identified cases. Um, so in the poster, you can see Table One summarizes the distribution of the cytologic interpretation among the HIV negative and HIV positive groups. Um, the distribution of the interpretations were similar between the two gro- Between the two groups, um, one thing to note was that. Uh h and h diagnoses comprise 13% of HIV-positive cases, but only 3.88% of HIV-negative cases. However, uh, due to the small cohort size, we did not find this to be statistically significant. Uh, in Figure 1, which, which is uh, the, f- the top uh, pie chart, um, we can see the distribution of eight high-risk HPV genotypes in the HIV-negative group, and then, so, you can see that HPV other was was, uh, and HPV other plus 16, 18 were comprised a majority. Um, Figure 2 shows the distribution of high-risk HPV genotypes in the HIV-positive groups. Um, just to summarize this, 84% of the HIV-positive patients tested positive for any of the uh, high-risk HPV compared to 72% of HIV-negative patients. Uh, in the subgroup of patients with negative cytology, 83% of HIV-positive patients tested positive for any high-risk HPV types compared to 50% 57% of HIV-negative patients. And, you know, because our cohort was small, uh, this wasn't statistically significant. But we found that a majority of patients tested positive for high-risk HPV genotypes other than 16 and 18, regardless of HIV status. And that was about 66% of the HIV-positive group and 71% of the HIV-negative group. Um, In our cohort, the other high-risk HPV genotypes were far more prevalent than uh, genotypes 16 and 18. So our conclusions were that uh, high-risk HPV genotypes other than 16 and 18 were more are more prevalent regardless of HIV status. And especially for HIV positive patients, this finding we found, we, we think that this finding could have implications in the management of uh, cancer risk, uh, as well as, you know, developing vaccine-based um, prevention strategies. So awesome. that, that's... Uh summary
5: great thank you that's wonderful summary thank you so much so what uh, motivated you uh, working on this project
6: so I I had a um, an early interest in cytopathology so I I started doing um, I started with a rotation in my second year uh, and at the time the fellow the current fellow was working on a Project examining anal cytology and HPV status Um, So I thought that his was a really interesting project and I worked with him to to try to develop an offshoot project and um, So we one thing that we had discussed when we were discussing his project was how many of these patients were HIV positive so um, you know we the two of us working together developed a, a as well as with the attending too, um, developed a project to look at how HIV um, correlated with um, the cytology and uh, HPV infection status.
5: And so what did you find most exciting and rewarding about working on this, this poster and project?
6: So doing Beginning this project, you know, and with a literature review and realizing there wasn't much known, there wasn't too much uh, literature on this. So, doing a project where not much is known is is exciting. I, I find that very rewarding and exciting. Um, I find that the idea that research could contribute to future guidelines or management of of cancer risk, or you know, development of H, uh, sorry, uh, Vaccination guidelines, even if it's just a framework or beginning of of uh, a foundation for for more research in the future, I, that's very rewarding to me.
5: Thank you. Um, and so, as a as a trainee, what were your biggest challenges? What were your challenges as a trainee? You know, yeah, so,
6: sorry. yeah. Um, I'm not sure if this is a trainee specifically, but as a trainee specifically, but I mean, one of the biggest challenges of doing this project was just the because this was an outreach um, patient population. Uh, the the patients often often had like a very incomplete uh, medical history, and it, it was hard to know whether sometimes. It would say that, or it would not re- suggest that the patient was HIV positive at all. But perhaps they were HIV positive. We had no way of knowing, um, and perhaps that that was a challenge as a trainee because if maybe I, I would have been able to, you know, felt more comfortable reaching out and finding out more information about these patients. Or I don't know. I, I found it difficult as a trainee because I felt like I had that was what I had, that was what I had to work with. So I had to um, try to make sense of the data as it was, as I had it. Um, and it ended up with some fairly noisy data as a result, where I suspect that some of the patients who were in the HIV negative group were indeed HIV positive. But I have no way to to, to show that.
5: Interesting, thank you. That's a, that's a great point um, about only being able to work with what you have. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think you kind of so kind of dovetailing into your last, um, or, or uh, your last point. What did you learn from this experience, um, and how would you advise others who are going trying to do similar projects um, in the future?
6: Yeah. Um, so I, I learned the importance of of and difficulty of collecting good data, um, particularly from medical records, and particularly from medical records from. I mean, it, medical records can be can have a various levels of, um, I guess, accuracy or, or reflection on what's going on. So I, I would advise uh, other residents or trainees interested in doing uh, research to start early and exercise a lot of patience with the data and just have time, give time to think about it, and give time and and additionally discuss the data with the other members of the other members involved with the project, as well as um, other faculty members uh, who are familiar or involved, Um, because having multiple sets of eyes uh, on the data can be really helpful in all covering trends and just finding some meaning in the data.
5: Great, thank you. Have you um, submitted this as a manuscript to the journal or?
6: I have not, but I mean, I would, I think in order to, um, to do that, I, we would, this project would require a bit more work, um, maybe be building a larger cohort size or, or you know, ensuring that the, the data is a little bit more uh, reflective of the patient's HIV status or, or whatnot. So I, I am potentially considering um, doing that uh, with the current fellow. Um, but I also have some other ideas uh, in cytopathology uh, research, then I'd be happy to submit um, a manuscript to JASC. Well,
5: yeah, well, excellent. I look forward to reading that whenever, if and when you do, that'd be great. Uh, thank you, Dr. Perez, so much for uh, sharing your really interesting um, uh, work, and uh, thank you, We we really appreciate your time.
6: Thank you very much.
5: Um, so we will move on to, uh, Melissa, Melissa, uh, um, Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you Jamie, for having me. not mind sharing her, her, her poster. Thank you, Jamie. Um, so as I said, uh, we were joined today now with, uh, by, excuse me, uh, we're joined, uh, by Melissa Mcrosson, um, and she, uh, won the award for innovative cytotechnologist practice um, established in 2018. This award demonstrates uh, programs, <clears throat> services, or projects performed by a cytotechnologist that are creative, cost-effective, and improved practice of cytopathology. Um, and so if you wouldn't mind, please sharing a little bit about your work. Um, and uh, thank you.
0: Thank you, James. Um- My name is Melissa McCrossin. I'm a staff cytotechnologist and the specialist technologist of education at Northwell Health in the Cytopathology Laboratory. Um, So our poster, Training in Cytopathology in Times of Social Distancing, a Comparison of Remote versus Traditional Learning, is a summation of our lab's experience with the COVID-19 pandemic and how we modified our cytology program to remote learning to continue to provide the necessary training for our residents and fellow. For our cytology program, we took known study set boxes and multiple unknown slide test boxes and scanned them into our eSlide Manager. We already had online study exams created a few years ago by myself, and um, we had slowly been introducing them into both our residency and fellowship programs. And we also uh, found and utilized old ASCP testing materials that were on CD-ROM and we moved them to an online format and created worksheets that went along with the online work. And um, our health system instituted Microsoft Teams and OneDrive to communicate between departments and to share materials with each other. So we created uh, policies and um, a schedule breakdown for our residents and fellow to follow and keep them on track while being off-site. We had daily morning lectures. Our residents research questions given to them by their assigned attendings. They screened the unknown and known cases by accessing the e manager from their home computers. We had daily sign out um, and they worked with their attendings via telecytology and they completed the daily workbook assignments. We also provided numerous websites to access videos of FNA techniques and, other, and others that simulated slide screening. In lieu of in-person ROSE FNAs, we created a simulated ROSE FNA experience through the Teams app in Telecytology. We used known cases and simulated to our residents and fellow what it would be like to perform ROSE over Telecytology. At the end of each rotation, we gave each resident and fellow an evaluation form to fill out. We also gathered their grades from entry and exit slide screening exams, online exams, and the daily work assignments. We found that most of our residents and fellow performed at the same level as they did prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we also had a few of our trainees that performed exceptionally well. Gathering the data from the evaluation forms, we also found that the majority of the residents and fellow felt that the amount of work received was comparable to that Uh, pre-remote learning and that they felt they learned about the same to more as previous rotations and that they wanted to continue to receive their work virtually. They found that the workload was easier to manage with having the option to work remotely or in person. And we found that to overcome the lack of hands-on experience of performing ultrasound guided FNAs due to the closure of our clinic that our attendings gave didactic lectures on the basics of ultrasound-guided FNA performance and interpretation of ultrasound-guided images. In conclusion, we found that remote learning performed just as well as in-person training, and that by combining the two, we can create a stronger and more robust program that is prepared (laughs) if we are faced with any unprecedented challenges in the future.
5: Excellent, thank you so much. Um, as a person who also, as a cytotech who also works at a uh, academic institution, it's uh, it's been a challenge, of, you know. Uh, and this is a really timely uh, presentation, so I really enjoyed uh, uh, going over it um, before this before this uh, this session. Um, so, what motivated? You, I mean, obviously, we know what motivated you work <laughs> in this project, but um, you know, what, what you know specifically, what did you what did you find most um, know,
0: most motivating about this? Um, Well, I definitely was motivated because it was decided that our residents and fellow were now working from home and it was like, okay. (laughs) Um, And I had to make sure that our program um, continued going and that it would still receive the same quality of education online as we did in person. Mm -hmm. So um, I needed to think outside the box and find creative ways to mimic our residents' daily workflow at home as it was in the office, um, I definitely pulled from past experiences uh, from my own training way, 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 way back when in cytology school, where um, I just thought of how my professor had combined, I- I'm dating myself, Kodachromes mm. with true slides and um, online. So I used that as a guide to think outside of the box and how can I do that for my residents. And um, to make sure that we were still up to the standards needed for our residents to pass their boards and increase our patient care. Um, I then decided to submit it to the um, ASC because I wanted to share our experience and also hear about other labs' experiences and how either they were similar or different. Excellent.
5: Thank thank you. Um, So kind of dovetailing off of that, you know, what was the most rewarding or exciting part of this um, project?
0: Um, It was definitely exciting and challenging to have to recreate an entire program in such a short amount of time without losing the integrity of the program. And none of us knew how long um, we would be remote teaching. but now retrospectively looking back at it, I found that the challenges were quite inspiring. Um, that, that our residents unexpectedly thrived in a new learning environment and adapted quickly and developed new skill sets. Um, seeing that they, our residents stayed the same and some even performed better uh, definitely provided comfort to me knowing that I was still providing the same level, if not a better quality of education. And due to this, uh, we now successfully incorporated new training methods, such as telecytology, into our program, uh, which we hadn't we had spoken about but hadn't really incorporated fully until now. And we're finding that it could hopefully lead to an advantage for our residents and fellow, and when applying for fellowships and faculty positions.
5: Oh, great, thank you. So. Um... As a cytotechnologist. so I mean, I know that your um, your role is in education, you know, uh, is the educator for your uh, your department. But were there any special challenges? I mean, obviously, other than you know <laughs> building an entire training program from scratch <laughs> main, um, or re you know redefining your your training program, what were there, were there any special challenges as a SETO tech? You know,
4: um,
0: yeah, definitely one of the biggest was trying to maintain my own workload. Um, as a cytotech, because obviously patients always come first. Um, So that was definitely trying to maintain the workload while developing a program. Um, I also was working with uh, multiple faculty and uh, fellow coworkers to um, coordinate training modules and making sure that everyone was following on the same page and that um, all aspects of the residency training were covered because our own FAC was affected by COVID 19, and so we had some shortages here and there. We also encountered computer issues when accessing eSlide Manager, connection issues with the computer, <laughs> lack of communication or lost communication during emails and conferences. And then our biggest challenge was that we, ha- we didn't have the hands on training for FNA rows and for microscopic screening, which are invaluable skill sets that can only be developed with fully hands-on, and not being able to do that, we um, was like the biggest challenge.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can totally I can totally see see those those as being extremely hard to to work work out. You know, um, so how would you advise others? You know, in your experience, um, you know, building this. You know, obviously we're going to be in this for a long time. So, you know, how are, you know, what, what experiences would you share with others?
0: Um, I would definitely say that it's amazing and what you can uh what you can learn in the, when facing adversity. Um, it definitely uh, forced us to reevaluate our past policies and procedures and implement new policies and procedures, um, especially regarding to items that were discussed in meetings, but we never had the urgency to pursue further that now we look at everything differently is in terms of do we need to do this now and implement this now, or is it something that could be on the back burner? Um, It definitely made us think outside the box, push outside of all of our comfort zones in terms of uh, telecytology and remote teaching, online screening of full slides uh, that not many of us are experienced with, or comfortable with, Um, but you know, you have to do what you need to do to make sure that your residents and fellows successfully meet the requirements for graduation and have success in their careers. And I'd also advise um, people to not be so hard on themselves, that everything's a work in progress and is constantly changing and we need to adapt with the change.
5: Excellent, thank you. Um, and it, also, are you submitting this to the JS, J, JASC? It's a work in progress. Yes, oh, I'm hoping. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time, and Dr. Post so thank you so much okay. for for your time um, and your excellent work. These are really excellent um, presentations and things that are really important to think about. Um, so again, we really uh, we appreciate it. Thanks.
7: Thank you so much for for having
5: us.
7: Thank you. So welcome to part three, Meet the Winners, presented by the Research and Current Concepts Committee. This will be a three-part series of all the winners from the 2020 Annual Scientific Meeting. I'm Diana Ng. I'm a
8: cytopathologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I'm Diana Lin. I'm a pathologist at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. So we have the Quality Improvement in Cytology Award. Established in 2019, this award recognizes quality improvement projects designed to improve quality in cytopathology practice. The award will be given to those projects that demonstrate innovative and forward-thinking approaches to current cytology practices, as well as measurable and replicable improvement. And this award went to poster 107, quality data abstraction utilizing Bethesda Pap testing reporting, key implementation science indicators for national gynecologic cytology benchmarks. We also have the Advances in Thyroid Cytology Award. Established in 2014, this award recognizes the abstract presentation that best contributes to the knowledge and diagnosis and treatment of thyroid diseases using fine needle aspiration and or ancillary techniques. This award is supported by an educational grant from thyroid cytopathology partners in Austin, Texas. This went to Platform 9, Immune Profiling of Thyroid Lesions and its Application to Malignancy Prediction. Amy,
7: maybe you can introduce yourself.
9: Hi, I'm Amy Spitzka. I serve as the Senior Director for Quality and Patient Safety with the American Society for Clinical Pathology by way of training. I'm a laboratory professional in histopathology, cytopathology, and also molecular biology.
10: All right, um, and I'm George Shih. I'm a graduate student at Vanderbilt University in the Department of Molecular Pathology and Immunology.
7: Okay, well, first off, congratulations, Amy and George, um, for your awards, I think this is a great honor. Um, So we can start off with just having you guys give us a summary presentation of your work.
9: So thank you. Also wanna recognize the American Society of Cytopathology for this recognition, as well as the opportunity certainly to uh, share the work that we've put forward. As you can see in our presentation, we focused on quality data abstraction, really looking at the Bethesda system pap test reporting to identify key implementation science indicators that could be potentially utilized nationwide for GYN cytology benchmarks. So by way of aims, we started out looking at mapping clinical quality measures this long-term to assure benchmarking indicators, again, aligned with pap test reporting. And what we did within the infrastructure of this, given our national pathology quality registry, is we assured that the Bethesda reporting, we use the 2015 version, aligned with PAP test quality measures. And from that crosswalk, what we were able to deduce is that continuous quality improvement benchmarking indicators can be readily available across unique features of um, the Bethesda system and really make sure that um, there's a conglomerate of um, meaningful data that can be put into individualized uh, quality measure type data. So just quickly, the National Pathology Quality Registry really measures for performance improvement to elevate patient outcomes, and we're also a CMS, Qualified Clinical Data Registry. We span all laboratory specialties, including cytopathology, and when we think about guidelines and measures, we're driven by data as a national quality measurement platform. So while we can look across all of the specialties within the lab, For instance, monitoring appropriate utilization, improving pre-analytical processes, uh, even considering optimizing turnaround time, critical value reporting. Critical to uh, cytopathology is that we can also assess analytical and diagnostic accuracy. This helps us establish best, best practices, excuse me, through national and peer group comparisons. I bring this to light because as we recognize the relevancy of the Bethesda system we wanted to apply it in the domain of continuous quality improvement. Additionally, I think in fairness to the real life experience that so many of us share is that as we're implementing or optimizing our laboratory information systems and EHRs there's really an opportunity to take a highly structured reporting system and identify how it is we can decrease administrative burden, but assure safety for our patients just based on this clinical quality measure set. I'll stop there. That's really an overview of what our project is.
7: Well, thank you Amy, I think that was great and I'm really excited that you're using implementation science frameworks Um, as a burgeoning implementation scientist um, who's really interested in uptake and also um, monitoring evaluation. I'm really excited that you're using implementation science. Um, So I guess we'll just move on to George uh, and your presentation.
10: All right, so uh, for my project, uh, my goal was to investigate genetic and immune predictors of thyroid lesion malignancy and outcome. Uh, We found that computational methods that use RNA sequencing data are capable of revealing distinct immune infiltrate profiles in different subtypes of thyroid lesions. Uh, Using this data, we've aimed to test whether immune infiltrate data can improve thyroid malignancy prediction. We've also tested the ability of this computationally derived data to predict things such as advanced thyroid tumor stage and poor outcome. Our preliminary results suggest that RAS mutation in combination with computationally deconvoluted levels of infiltrating B cells, CD4 T cells, macrophages and neutrophils, improves malignancy prediction even in thyroid lesions without a BRAF, TP 53 or tert promoter mutation. Uh, additionally, we found that macrophage levels may be used to improve tumor stage prediction. And uh, finally, we found that TERT promoter mutation, TP53 mutation, and macrophage levels each may predict future poor outcome.
7: Okay. So thank you, George, that was a great summary. Um, I, was at, I was at your platform moderating, so I know um, how in-depth and, Um, how interesting your data are. Um, I think the role of of kind of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes and kind of immune response in thyroid cancer has really been underexplored. So I think this is really exciting work. Thank you. Um, So since
8: I asked question one, maybe Diana can ask question two. Sure. So what motivated you to work on this project?
9: Um, So really the motivation behind this project is um, on several levels very practical. Specific to proof of concept, we wanted to drive continuous quality improvement on our patients behalf. So first and foremost, certainly being patient centric. On the very practical side of this, as well as I have to say being curious, we recognize fully the relevancy of the Bethesda system when it comes to Pap test reporting. We also recognize that the Bethesda system has really uh, integrated well to clinical practice. And when you think about permanence in practice and the consistent utilization, it was a safe model to base curiosity of implementation science on. And the reason I say this is when you think of data points spanning the entire laboratory, clinical laboratory discrete results are clearly um, that much more not only readily available, but easy to crosswalk by way of clinical quality measures. It's discrete data, it's very specific, it's a range, uh, You know, it's not necessarily um, descriptive as we've come to know in pathology. But the Bethesda really offers, uh, again, that relevancy and permanence to apply some concepts for crosswalking and algorithmic type building out of what this can mean for clinical quality measures. Additionally, I have to share that, you know, there are so many of us, I historically was in the role of um, education leadership with Mayo Clinic. I also served as anatomic pathology operations manager with Mayo Clinic. And, you know, for many of us in those roles or similar roles, even pathologists, there's extensive administrative burden. A lot of work goes into what we do to prove our level of quality. And that's well worth, I think there's a strong return on investment. However, I was curious, as was our team, as to what we could do to drive down that administrative burden while we recognize and reconciled, again, the benefits of uh, Bethesda systems. So really, it comes down to healthcare data mapping to clinical quality measures, and how we can identify benchmarking indicators for continuous quality improvement. Um, and in, In essence, we developed an algorithmic crosswalk that designated our Bethesda system GYN cytopathology to quality data points. So it was curiosity, but it was also the need to be incredibly practical and to give back to the community while assuring our patient safety.
7: Actually, Amy, I don't
9: think everyone knows
7: what implementation science is since it's a relatively new field. Maybe you can just give a brief definition
9: Sure, I'll certainly uh, strive to, you know, meet on on all the impacts of it, but please feel free if there's something that I forget. Um, I think implementation science, at least uh, from my perspective where I work now um, as um, a leader for quality and patient safety really relates to continuous quality improvement, but it includes those human attributes as relates to even data points that we can qualify and quantify such that as we go forward with implementing, it can be products, it can be services, but it can also be quality and assuring quality. Um, It's that uh, the science that assures um, each step of an iterative process is confirmed and um, articulated, documented such that um, that is known moving forward. And in this case, it's really building out an algorithm. Would you like to speak more to it? I'm sorry. I think just I, my my sound bite would be, um,
7: I think the way I see it is is the the field that allows us to bridge evidence um, to practice gaps. Yes. Um, that's how I usually define it. Just kind of how do you, we for example, we all know that brushing your teeth is really good for you, but how do you get everyone to brush your teeth reliably?
9: Yeah, and I think it's that evidence to practice. Um, in the framework of this is, you know, continuous quality improvement. Mm-hmm. But again, the practice of the Bethesda system, right? Yes. Uh, on every pap test report, you know, we must use it. It's to your good point, brushing your teeth. Um, but because there is such permanence in practice, implementation science works well in this regard, uh, building a bridge from experience to reliable practice. Thank you.
4: George. Okay,
10: Um, so the question was, what motivated you to work on this project, right? Um, So one of our main motivations for this project was to better understand markers of aggressive thyroid cancer. Uh, The ability to predict thyroid cancer malignancy has really greatly advanced over the recent years. But a question that hasn't been as thoroughly explored is whether or not we can predict which well-differentiated tumors are most at risk for future disease recurrence or aggression, so I was interested in learning whether uh, some emerging tools, such as immune infiltrate deconvolution using RNA seq data, might provide a way to anticipate outcomes and guide
5: treatments.
7: Yeah, and I, I think um, I think your work is very critical, just because molecular as. as as it is hasn't really, there hasn't been an algorithm that predicts aggression and prognosis. Um, I think the molecular data are really great in really stratifying how malignant it will be, but I think there really needs to be a lot of work done in terms of stratifying prognosis. Um, So next question for both of you would be, what did you find most exciting and
9: rewarding about this project? Thank you. I think um, really the reward came uh, from the unknown. Um, We entered into this hoping to discover how we might align HL7 and uh, data points to the Bethesda system reporting. So we used HL7 standards, it was version 2.8 and we transferred Bethesda system patient data. We were very strict in our criteria, both for PHI and HIPAA standards. And as you can well imagine, you know, the two indicators within PAP test reports, so specimen adequacy and then interpretation or diagnostic reporting parameters were abstracted. And I think in fairness to the practice of the Bethesda system, there's definitely the published strict reporting criteria. And so we drove to that first in our initial algorithm. This, again, to identify a crosswalk of numeric indicators mapped to clinical quality measures. So when we think of mapping and we think of numeric indicators, again, it was a little bit of, you know, entry point for us by way of looking at specimen adequacy. We could really look at binomial numeric indicators, satisfactory, unsatisfactory and then uh, look at unique indicators for all of the Bethesda diagnostic categories. Again, starting with very strict reporting criteria, but we wanted to be respective of reporting practice nuances. The reason I share this is if we were to keep our algorithm only with strict criteria, we recognize across all of the practices and uh, even patient nuances, that our quality indicators would not be as viable or as valid, given the fact that some of the reports would fall off. So we started with strict criteria and then our next iteration really looked at assessing potentially divergent PAP test reporting indicators. We wanted to coalesce, make sure that we had good convergence around identifying any reporting indicators that would link to the Bethesda system. So at that point, we had two um, broad constructs. Certainly, the specimen adequacy was the easiest and the most secure. And then what we did is we uh, we reviewed patient PAP test reports. And as you're probably aware, HL7 falls into OBR and OBX segments, specifically observation requests and observation results. And those segments and sequences really in their entirety can be abstracted for linkage uh, to the assessment to the numeric indicators algorithm. So, you know, the excitement, the intrigue really came (laughs) that there were so many unknowns, but again, a belief that if we approach this from, again, more of a learning interface and implementation science what we could do is holistically map strict Bethesda potential nuances and then ultimately integrate optimal CQM mapping. And that I think was, you know, if we can boil it down into one um, outcome that was uh, incredibly rewarding, uh, that's it.
10: All right. Uh, so, to answer your question, uh, what did you find most exciting and rewarding about this project? So one of the main reasons I'm really excited about this project is because of what I think is its potential impact. Uh, this project uses uh, clinical specimen, specimens we collect at Vanderbilt University, and the findings we think have the potential to directly change clinical care and improve patient outcomes. Uh, additionally, I'm excited for this project since um, it helps me to build my computational skill set and advance my career. So, as a graduate student, Uh, It's really important for me to be learning and keeping up to date with methods that are useful for my field of research. So I've really picked up a lot of skills in coding like in Unix and R and like a lot of other like platforms that I've had zero experience prior to starting this project.
8: Thank you. So I'll move on. What were the challenges you faced in completing the project and how did you address them?
9: I think uh, the challenges that we experienced were along several different um, unique experiences. Certainly, technology—you uh, know, interfaces, feeds, uh, scrubbing data—all of that. Certainly, looked to our data partner as relates to not only assuring patient safety but also making sure that we had valid data. So. Um, that had to be a baseline and one that, you know, was expertise in the field we were able to achieve. I think, in fairness as well, um, looking past or looking in past experiences of my career, um, the Bethesda system is a language, right? It's a language that feels very at one for us. It's a level of comfort. Uh, even though I'm not currently a practicing cytotechnologist, you know, I can envision the days of. Being at the microscope and really having that reliability of that, again, viable language. So, too, for our colleagues in information management, you know, when we speak of languages such as HL7 and clinical quality measures, OBR, OBX, those are um, languages that they gravitate to, add meaning, and characterize, in our case, true quality on behalf of our patients. So, it was really the um, ability to not only explore new language skills, you know, we've been learning this as a community, as a scientific community uh, throughout, uh, again, looking back at LIS and EHR implementation and optimizations. If we lean into these languages, what we find is that we can have truly data-driven quality measures. So overcoming that challenge, making sure that the Bethesda system as a taxonomy could, again, match to CQM logic, really helped to build an algorithm linking Bethesda to HL7. And I think, you know, that capacity and the validity to really align quality indicators is shown in the data. We had over 1,300 aggregated PAP test reports, uh, so we overcame the technology challenge. Those were inclusive of adequacy and diagnostic indicators. And then, as I shared with you, both the initial iteration and the more nuanced iteration of Bethesda yielded over 6,400 unique PAP test results. We confirmed all of that with Bethesda system reporting and truly found 100% accuracy of Bethesda system reporting aligning with that abstracted PAP test numeric indicators.
5: Right, Um,
10: so I'll go ahead and answer the question. So uh, one challenge of uh, my project was just managing the large and very complex set of uh, clinical and sequencing data for our many patients and samples in our cohort. Uh, Another challenge of this project was learning how to set up the code to get the raw RNA sequencing data um, to a gene expression expression count table data uh, that could be used for immune deconvolution. Uh, While I I had some experience with next generation sequencing library building in the past, uh, processing these results um, of the data was not something I knew how to do until I entered grad school. Uh, However, with the guidance of my professor and our collaborators, as well as some basic coding experiences I picked up in grad school class and in previous research, I was able to learn how to uh, set up and run the code successfully.
7: Yeah, that's that's something I've noticed too with my own personal projects. is just how to manage large amounts of data. I think both uh, Amy and you, George, you, you're dealing with very large data sets. So how do you how do you organize them and how do you analyze them in, in meaningful ways? Um, I know your projects are very different, but you know clearly data management is a universal theme in a lot of research projects. Um, so in terms of uh, kind of moving forward with the questions. Um, Uh, What what are some future directions uh, for your projects?
9: What's your next step? Thank you. When we look at future directions, uh, to your good point as relates to uh, large data sets, manipulation, making sure again, uh, validity, and just confirming all data points, there are some real opportunities to engage with some, I would say emerging technology, to uh, make these more scalable solutions. So suffice it to say uh, this was the creation of, again, indicators, the Bethesda reporting and algorithm linked to, you know, binomial and multinomial um, uh, indicators that we could crosswalk. So future directions really, you know, opening up dialogue with other clinical sites and even technology partners to make scalable solutions. When you think of this on a broad scale uh, to the benefit again of our patients, and even with what George had said, you know, with uh, identifying an algorithm that's meaningful even outside our initial uh, look, you know, we can link to measures everything from rate of major and minor discrepancies, um, identifying um, total discrepancy rates in overall cases. Even simple things such as rate of review of pap test samples interpreted as negative, um, you know, making that as a benchmarking indicator site versus site without a lot of the heavy lifting or administrative burden associated with that. So ultimately towards benchmarking, we'd like to map clinical quality measures to assure uh, patient safety and pap test reporting. Uh, You know, if we could get a view or vision on this by way of more national type standards, I think that would be meaningful to the community. And it wouldn't necessarily mean individual locations looking at what their reporting uh, outcomes are. And from assuring that crosswalk with Bethesda system, uh, we can even more more assure aligned PAP test quality measures.
7: Yeah, and that's, that's the cousin of implementation science is dissemination. Exactly. <laughs> so let's yeah, that's always the natural next step. So George, what are your future directions?
10: Um, yeah, so for the next steps of uh, my project, uh, we're in the process of expanding our cohort. Um, and we'll be receiving additional thyroid cancer samples from the University of Washington, one of our collaborators, uh, including anaplastic cancer samples. Which are pretty rare and valuable for our means, um, but this will greatly improve our ability to study aggressive thyroid cancers. Uh, additionally, once we have our additional samples, we will be able to have the statistical power to evaluate combined models, like such as the model looking at TERT promoter mutation, TP fifty three mutation, and macrophage levels to predict future poor outcome altogether. Uh, We also have plans to compare metastases to primary tumors of the same patient, so like sequential samples. And finally, we also plan to evaluate a larger cohort of uh, fine needle aspiration samples using flow cytometry. So our initial flow cytometry of about 32 fine needle aspiration samples looks really good. And supports our findings so far, but we plan to collect additional samples to prove the ability to detect these alterations with flow and not just RNA sequencing.
7: Okay. And another question: So, what, what do you envision if this became a clinical test? How how would you envision this um, actually kind of realizing itself? Like, would you would this be like a multiplex PCR where you have a small panel kind of whittled down from the RNA seq data, or do you feel like this would be a flow-based test.
10: So I think, so we have RNA sequencing data and then we have flow. And I think the benefit of like say on one side with um, RNA sequencing is that patients already get like a lot of genetic testing of thyroids, like, you know, RNA-seq and DNA-seq. So since we already have that data available, it's not too much work to do additional analysis on that data. But um, I think having both is really important. Like like RNA sequencing and flow to like validate each other, and also existing tests that you know predict malignancy using genetic um, testing. I think are still very valuable. But looking at immune deconvolution is just adding another angle on top of that to give you more resolution and more detail.
7: I would love an automated multiplex PCR. <laughs> if you could ever make that, I would love that.
10: Well, <laughs> definitely look into it. Thank you.
8: Great it's always good to hear that it's not just one project you've got more stuff going you're going to get more and more projects out of this because we know both of you have such great projects, you know you don't want to stop there just keep continuing. So the next question is what did you learn from this experience that you would advise others.
9: I think one of the key takeaways from our experience is that uh, the exploration of new solutions to required work really uh, can help identify um, some new approaches. And again, those language skills, the, uh, the convergence of technology with something that we've become, uh, you know, that's really, um, Historical foundational in our experience, such as the Bethesda, that the efficacy of technology can really elevate that. And I think the other uh, recommendation that I would put forward is just the value of benchmarking to patient outcomes. So to the good point of you know dissemination as part of implementation science, it's broader than just you know a single institution and uh, serving certainly for patients nationwide. And this is an algorithm that could work by way of benchmarking and really supporting PAP test outcomes.
10: All right, so um, to answer your question, um, I think this experience taught me that uh, organization, as we were discussing before, is really important when maintaining a large cohort of data. So by keeping say like multiple copies of all of my records as they're updated over time, I can always go back to ensure that I know what edits to the data are happening and when. Uh, The experience also taught me that uh, data and findings can be surprising and that science doesn't always work out the way we predict, which is why we call them hypotheses. Uh, For example, prior to our analysis, uh, B cells were not really something that we had been thinking about much, but our data for B cells turned out to be really surprising and interesting across our thyroid lesions. Uh, we're still not sure why yet, but the data holds up and should give us more insight into thyroid cancer metastasis and progression.
9: Sure. And congratulations,
10: George. Oh, sorry. I'm muted. Uh, congratulations, Amy, as well.
9: Okay. Yeah.
10: And thanks again, everyone.
9: Sure. Yes, thank you. This was a positive interaction. Appreciate you all. Oh, it was great. It was great.
0: Okay. Thank you for listening to Cytopath Pod. You can reach ASC on Twitter at Cytopathology or via email at ASC at cytopathology.org.